If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Uh, it's our tell uh, one of our regulars uh, when we go to economic type issues, and he is an economist, not a communist, as my daughter misheard me introducing him earlier when I said economist. Uh, Jericho Hill, how are you, sir? I'm doing very good today. How taking, are you doing, Andrew? Taking a sip of his designer beer with his pinky up because he's one of them DC elitist type people. It's uh, literally a harpoon that you have after beer league <laughs> softball. It is by far not a fancy beer. <laughs> Duly noted. We kid we kid those that we love. Now Jericho's great people. We love talking economic issues with him. I, I want to start with some big picture stuff, and then we'll talk a little bit because I want to get into housing with you, which is something you're kind of specializing in lately. But um. I, I see a trend on social media and even the news media, even the talking heads and economists, they seem to only talk to the general public about economics using counterfactuals with whatever the headline of the moment is. And I know economics is this really deep thing. You were even tweeting about this the other day, I think. I, I don't know that we're doing this in a really healthy manner because I understand it's too big of a subject for Twitter or Facebook posts or even an eight or nine minute interview. I've, I've had you on for a whole hour and we barely scratched the surface of certain things. But this seems like a really bad way to try to communicate about something that's multi-layered, multifaceted, and changes five minutes after you try to explain what's going on right this minute because it's already changed again, isn't it? So, I mean, I get the hint here that you're talking about the great inflation debate of this past week and, and the, the shocking headline number of 7% year-over-year growth in inflation. And Among other things, yeah. You know, but, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip on that for a moment because, you know, yeah, this that's a high number for year-over-year inflation. Anybody that says that's not a high number, I don't know what they're doing. But one of the things that we seem to lack in the conversation is we don't think about what would have happened if we didn't have the fiscal support that we put into place in 2020 and 2021. You know, for instance, you might think of it as a choice between do we have higher than normal inflation or do we have higher than normal unemployment? And what I think we saw was that policy policymakers remembered the mistakes of the Great Recession, where our policy response was um, not enough uh, in hindsight, which led to a lot of people being unemployed for a lot longer than they really needed to be. And long-term unemployment is a really bad thing. I mean, not just for the people that are unemployed, it's a bad thing for the economy. It's absolutely awful to be a long-term unemployed person when you want to work. You lose skills, you lose connections. you know. And so this time around with, with the COVID, what we saw was policymakers say, we're going to, um, I mean, they didn't say this explicitly, they maybe they should have been more clear, but they said, 
we're going to do massive fiscal stimulus this time around so that we're going to be able to get back to you know low unemployment super fast. And we are right now under 4% unemployment by the standard unemployment metric that everybody cites, you know, at least of among economists. Um, and that, that's incredible two years into a pandemic, but it comes at a cost. And so like, we don't have a conversation about like, we chose policy A to avoid outcome B, but that came with a cost. But if we had gone with the, if we had done, if we hadn't done enough, we might be still having a conversation where we might have a conversation right now, Andrew, where unemployment is 9%, 10%, you know, but inflation is 2%. And, and I would just say the talking heads that are out there would be blaming everything on high unemployment and saying that's bad and just not worrying about the inflation. It seems a little disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. It'd be like we had a policy choice to make, you know, and this is where we made it. And I, I wish that we talked about trade-offs because nothing's, nothing's clean, you know, um, and I sympathize with folks that are being hit with inflation. As someone who doesn't buy used cars, right? I'm, I'm a higher income earner. So I'm, I'm very unlikely to be buying a used car compared to lower income workers. I sympathize. I'm like, well, the higher income folks maybe aren't seeing the inflation that some of the lower income folks are seeing, right? And we should be cognizant of that. But maybe we're in a DC bubble where we don't really think about that. Right. He's Jericho Hill, DC bubble dweller, but he talks to us uh, common folk in a way that we can understand and we appreciate him for it. I want to uh, always remember that I grew up in, 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 uh, in South Georgia. You know, I got to remember my roots. In South Georgia, which is a land of celebration as of late, but let's not rehash that horrible day. Hey, oh, no, I, I do want to rehash that because apparently <laughs> the last play when Georgia uh, won the national go. championship was on a third down and 28 yards. So I can conclusively determine that the curse of Atlanta sports is now over. And just because he spoke it into existence, of course, it will not. I will remind you that the Atlanta Falcons are still a thing. Nevertheless, we will press on. Um, one of the things you just mentioned there before we got derailed into the land of Georgia college football, um, you talked about the unemployment rate. We, we have really long, well-established metrics for unemployment, the U3, uh, table A15. Everybody knows, you know, certain every quarter we've got to pull that out, go through it. We've already talked about with you, but it bears to mention here the fact that you have so many people retiring early, early retirees. You had people drop out of the workforce for COVID mm -hmm. because a lot of those part time or seasonal workers could not do that because of the schools being closed or uh, other situations. Is some of this just we don't have great metrics for what's actually happening in the economy right now because some of this stuff has never happened before. So they're not really sure how to measure it. And that's where you get a discrepancy like low unemployment, but a labor shortage at the same time. Well, actually, I was reading something really interesting about the labor shortage. Because of um, immigration has slowed down dramatically uh, during a time, uh, during a global pandemic, quite understandably so, um, some of the labor, actually a good, a good proportion of that labor shortage is because we don't have uh, migrant labor, so to speak, right? Uh, folks coming into the country to, to do work. We're actually missing about, if I remember correctly, it's about 2 million uh, folks who would have migrated into the U.S. Uh, and turned into part of our labor force. So that could be part of the labor shortage right there. But in general, your, your point is well taken. And I think that it's something that, that I try to remind myself, when you have a fast moving crisis, which clearly this COVID pandemic is, and even two years after, in economics, two years is a blink of an eye, right? Um, 
our, our, our ability to look at things is compromised. We don't have a lot of real-time data. Like we, we go out to the world and we do surveys. Those surveys take time to complete. They take time to come back. They take time to analyze and get the numbers out, right? That's why you often see in the jobs reports, they'll say, we made, we had 200,000 more jobs this year. But by the way, last month we said we had 150,000, but it was actually 250,000 or it was 50,000. Oops, you know, we waited for more data. So I, if we're not cognizant that our ability to understand what's going on is somewhat compromised in a fast moving crisis, like I think we are kidding ourselves about data reliability. What is a good way to know when we're getting bad? Uh, information though for a layperson because you know that we our number our eyes just kind of roll when they start throwing away like the U3 numbers on a graphic it just doesn't make any sense to us because most people don't know what it is and they don't really care they just want to know is it good or is it bad um, and we know every economic report that comes out on network news is always unexpectedly which we've kind of turned into a joke when can folks know because they intuitively know like something with the unemployment rate and the labor shortage they intuitively know that that doesn't make sense even if they don't fully understand they're just like well wait that doesn't make sense or they understand when covid happens and and there's uh supply chain issues that makes sense to them in a practical way is there a good way to get normal information to normal people that don't need you know a degree in mathematics and microeconomics to kind of sort through this because another part of this is the public may not be reacting to what's actually happening economically because they just don't have the right information. So I think, it's, I think again, another good point from Andrew. Now, what I would say here is there's a joke about economists, right? You, on the one hand, this is happening, but on the other, something else, right? I think if you're listening to, to econ reporters and economists and they're not in a time of crisis, hedging and saying, you know, yes, we're seeing this, but this could also be the case because we are in a time of much high uncertainty. You know, maybe that's a quality signal, right? I would much rather hear from economists um, and reporters who say, well, this is what we're seeing, but there are these other things that are out there that we don't know about yet. And I'd have a lot more confidence hearing something like that, that well, at least what's being reported to me is being reported in good faith and, and, is, and is as accurate as, as they can make it. Right. So like with the inflation unemployment earlier, I tried to say, look, there was a trade off. I, I don't know where the median America, you know, you know, lies on the on that trade off with it exists. I just think we should have communicated that a bit better to folks, you know, and be cognizant of that when we're thinking about what could be happening. We I know commentators like me who just do the po political side of it. Um, not to pick on them, but they're in the chair. That's how it works. Uh, President Biden and the Democratic leadership. What would you rate their messaging on the economy right now? Uh, a, B, C, D, F. Everybody's talking about their messaging is inconsistent and not great. But you as the economist, how's it been coming off to you? Solid C. Solid C. Do explain, sir. So I, I feel like this is one of those issues where like, they should be taking a victory lap in the sense that, you know, Unemployment got down really low, really fast. And yeah, some of that is people leaving the labor force, you know, permanently retirees, as you mentioned earlier, retirees and whatnot. But but generally speaking, I don't think when this crisis started that uh, the median economic forecast had unemployment getting back down to four percent the way we measure it just this early on. And I think that is deserving of a victory lap for the administration. But they they also seem to sort of argue the technical correct and not sort of what feels right to people. 
and not think about the fact that there are distributional differences in what's going on. I think, you know, the folks that, you know, might have been, you know, pushing, you know, yes, inflation is transitory. And I still myself personally do believe inflation is transitory, but the rhetoric of inflation is transitory means I don't worry about it. It's not really going to be a thing in a year or two, but again, we go back to that family who's, who's making $35,000 a year, who still has to go to work right in person because their job doesn't offer telework like some of those fancy pants people in DC uh, and their car broke down and they got to get a new car, but uh, you know, they got a car, but you know, nobody's selling their cars. So used car prices shot up. So now they got to pay a lot more money for uh, a new, uh, for a used car. You know, that, that's a real issue. And, you know, I, I think that maybe some more humility and some more, getting outside the DC bubble might've been a good strategy for, for the Biden administration. So that's why I rate them a C. Like, honestly, like we've continued some policies under the Trump administration to come out of the COVID pandemic and, and they're reasonably healthy for the economy matter. We still have supply chain issues that we hope that will resolve themselves. And I'm confident they will um, as we deal with the global, as the global pandemic sort of unwinds. I'm hoping that Omicron is the last gasp until this COVID becomes like flu 2.0. Um, that would be really nice. Um, and we might be beyond this by the end of 2022. But, you know, let's let's not pretend that there's not a significant slice of the population that's hurting. Yeah, we're talking to Jericho Hill. We're going to talk about some of those things like the telework change in the economy. We're also going to get into a little bit of housing, which is kind of his area of focus outside of his day-to-day economic jobs. We're going to get into all that with him on Hertel right after this. Uh, it's our tell show talking to our buddy Jericho Hill. He's an economist. Uh, he's one of them DC dweller people, uh, but he's one of the good ones. We like to get his perspective on things. You were talking about uh, telework just a minute ago. You mentioned also 2008, 2009, the Great Recession. That's kind of the last big economic crisis people will have fresh in their minds. But that was a crisis that was brought on mostly by housing, uh, bad loans, predatory lending, these sorts of things. This crisis is more of uh, supply side stuff that's going on with the inflation and such like that. One of the big differences, though, is we've got this thing called telework now. So when you dump people out of the economy or out of the workforce, I should say not the economy, they're not actually leaving the economy. They're just moving the workforce to home. That has massive, massive implications to the wider economy, though, when you have people just working from home, though, don't you? Yeah, for instance, you know, I've got a family member who was uh, working for an IT firm out west, and after COVID, that that firm decided they're going to go fully remote, and so he moved from uh, out west all the way down to to Florida, um, you know, completely up a, up 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 and move basically to farmland in Florida, where he can still do his job, you know, and so that allows I think you know there, there's this there's this new thing going on where certain white collar jobs because for a lot of service sector and retail work that 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 still takes place in person so that's that's not subject to telework but for for some white collar jobs um a significant swath i think we're looking at the ability of those white collar workers to sort of change where they where they live um and still work for a company so it might be that companies decide um, we're cool with you if you want to live within the country, but you know, like you can't go, like you can't be a U.S. can't work for a U.S. firm and work in in Japan, maybe. But or we want you to 
to stay working in the city. Our, our headquarters is in Kansas City, but you know now you don't have to worry about a commute. So if you want to live 50 miles away from Kansas City and live out of the country, go go for it. Like that's not a problem. And, and I think that has, like, if we think about that, that has, you know, obviously implications for the distribution of white collar workers in this country, their geographic location that will play into what housing prices are. Look, the city that had the highest year over year price increase in housing is Boise, Idaho. That was not Idahoans moving to Boise, Idaho. Those were Californians moving to Boise, Idaho, right? Uh, because of remote work. Um, the other thing that I think we have to think about is, what does this do to the downtown workforce that was previously catering to the white collar workforce that now is more than likely working from home? What happens? Do these, do these office buildings that are now vacant get repurposed into condos and apartments for like 20 somethings that want to live in high amenity, great restaurants, clubs, you know, city life that you know, a lot of, a lot of people in their twenties want. Um, and, and maybe that helps the, that keeps the retail and the, and the restaurants, you know, moving or, does the activity of our service sector also have to shift over to where people are now working, I, I, we're living? I, I don't know. We're, we're obviously only two years into this, and we're only seeing little hints of it. Is the telework revolution from an economic standpoint, uh, is it good, is it bad, or is it neutral? And by that, I mean, if this is a trend that continues where you have, I'm just going to pick a number here because nobody probably really knows the number, but let's say out of the workforce, you got 5 million people doing this just hypothetically. That's a that's a if you have any kind of a, a big number like that moving, but if it becomes a sustained thing, a telework, is that going to be a good thing, a bad thing, or a neutral thing economically speaking? Well, I, I first want to speak to it uh, on a personal level. I think that if you give, if we have a situation where more people have a broader choice on where to live, right, and where to work, like to me, that choice has to be a good thing, right, for for the people, right. Um, you know, and obviously, again, we, there are costs, right? What 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 happens to, to to folks that worked in jobs that were previously concentrated in the city center, so to speak, the restaurant workers, right? Um, now, you know, so so I think you know, I think telework overall, greater access to telework is probably, if you were to put a gun to my head, I would say it's probably a net positive for the economy, but that's an average. That's not the experience of everybody. Um, and so I would hope that as we sort of think about, I think we should be planning for a world in which um, where you work and where you live is somewhat decoupled, right? Uh, it could be decoupled in the sense that maybe, you know, I'm a DC, you know, I work for the federal government. Maybe I don't need to live right near DC. Maybe I can live out in Loudoun County or, you know, closer to the West Virginia border, a, a state near and dear, obviously, to your heart, you know, because I want to live near the mountains and I don't have to worry about commuting, you know. That that could be you know that 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 could change the you know where where folks want to live, but you know it, it could also mean you know that um, that you know maybe you know do do we connect the same way that we do right? So some companies are responding to telework by saying, hey, you can you can continue to telework. Uh, we're going to allow you to telework permanently, but you still have to live within like a certain radius of your assigned home office because we're still going to have meetings every few weeks. We want people to be in person. And we probably haven't reached the point of society where we're willing to make really important decisions virtually. Like I think there's still a value to, to, to actually seeing people in person, reading body language. It's probably why in-person poker is so much better than virtual poker. I don't know. I'm a lot better at virtual poker than I am in person, but that's another topic for another day. 
Um, another one of those indicators, like you were just talking about, though, is housing, of course. Uh, for most people, their house is the most expensive, biggest ticket item in their personal finances. We also know that housing is a huge economic indicator because uh, I forget the exact number, but I know if you build a house, it takes like 27 separate trades to build a house, this sort of thing. It's, it's always an economic number. But it's also one of them confusing things to folks because we keep hearing we have you know economic concerns, maybe not a full-blown crisis yet, but a lot of people are worried about the economy. And yet the housing market is just going through the roof. It's crazy what's going on in the housing market right now. And then at the same time, people keep hearing about a housing shortage for lower income people. Here's another one of those things. Jericho Hill doesn't make a lot of sense to the normal person. Explain it to us. <laughs> So look, I'll try to explain it very simply, right? You mentioned the great financial crisis of 08, right? So if you look at how many homes we were building versus how many people, new people wanted to buy a home um, before 2008, we seem to be doing a pretty good job. Like housing supply and housing demand were meeting each other. That's a good thing. Post-crisis, we have had more housing demand than we've had housing supply increase. So, you know, even though I hate Economics 101 as being used as a model to explain what's going on, I'm going to appeal to an Econ 101 model. When demand keeps rising and supply isn't keeping up, prices are going to rise, right? And that's sort of irrespective of the interest rate environment or, or anything else. Like that, that's just what we see. Um, and indeed, you know, estimates of the national housing shortfall is 3 million, 5 million. I mean, you know, pick your number in between that. But uh, that's only been growing since 2008. So, so that, that might help explain why we have a housing shortage. Like it's just we've, we've stopped building. Um, and some reasons because of that is, is one that, that a lot of folks might, want, might say is our zoning laws don't allow us to build the kind of housing that we really need to build. So what I mean by that is a lot of cities, not every city, but a lot of cities have zoning that basically says you can only build a single family house with this size of a lot, right? And that, that's all you can do. Um, there's a great example. If you look at some pictures of San Fran, you'll basically see there's a ton of single family exclusive zoning. And we wonder why prices in San Fran are astronomically high. You know, um, they simply can't build the housing they need. They can't build, you know, two or three houses on the same plot of land that they really need to do because people want to live there. Does the the fact that we we really don't have an ability to, you know, that, that's a that's a that's a local issue, right? The, and 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 the local property owners have an incentive um, to keep zoning the way that it is. So we we may not have the ability to to build the types of homes that we really need to. In particular, the type of home that we sort of see as missing is is what we call missing middle. Missing middle housing are your your duplexes, your your, your triplexes, your row homes, you know, homes with a yard, but still a little bit denser, not a big yard, you know. Um, we don't see those homes being built as much. Um, and that, that, that contributes to a lot. And those homes, obviously, by being smaller, are much more affordable. What we do see in a lot of cities are, are what we call ramblers, you know, one-story homes being bulldozed to build a McMansion because that's what the zoning allows them to do. And that property owners are responding saying, well, I can't build a duplex on my property. So I guess in order to maximize its value, I've got to build a mansion. Do we want that? I, I, I certainly don't, but. 
Yeah, and that gets into uh, regulatory reform that is a whole nother topic for another day, which we will definitely get into with you. Uh, Jericho Hill joining us. Good economic stuff, but you've got a little bit of a side project going. You've got a sub stack going with some numbers, yeah. just some raw data for folks. Uh, let folks know what's going on with that. Yeah, sure. So look, you know, I I, I started this year. I wanted to, to sort of bring housing statistics to to a lot of folks. So I have a Substack. Apparently all the kids have a Substack these days. So that's what we do. So it's, it's jerichohill.substack.com. And basically what I do with the Substack is I just pull data and statistics from press releases and reports issued by the government, by private sector firms like Zillow or Redfin or CoreLogic. These are all housing related firms. Uh, and then I go into, I have one section on that that just, just just gives you what the facts are. And then I go into, here's some research that just got sort of put out there in the last month that might be interesting. So like, for instance, you know, like I highlight a report from Redfin, you know, what they're looking at, you know, they're looking at, you know, reference looking at, at, at new listings. And it, they're, they're saying that the data that they're seeing says that sellers might be more motivated. So we might see an uptick in housing supply uh, being offered to homes on the market, which would sort of start to sort of tamper down that the sort of crazy house price rises that we've been seeing, you know, but, but to go back to a point, like the other reason why we're seeing house prices rise so much, um, the millennial generation, which we have to remind ourselves are not 20 year olds. These are like mid 30 year olds uh, are millennials. Um, they're entering their prime home buying years and there's a lot more of them entering than there are boomers that are going to be, you know, going into, you know, assisted living facilities or dying off. And so that sort of extra demand is just going to, to keep housing costs sort of, it's a floor on housing, housing costs. So, so it's hard to see housing getting cheaper. It's hard to see a housing price debacle collapse happening in the very near future. And on that happy note of death and getting put into a home, <laughs> we thank Jericho Hill for his time. Uh, but that that's just the, that's just the reality of some of this stuff. You have generational change. You're going to have generational economic change to come along with it. Um, We're all going to uh, be there at some point, my friend. Uh, tell some of us quicker than others, apparently. Um, but we appreciate that. I, I love stuff like that product though, because one thing we do, we do this at ordinary times also where, uh, Jericho writes with us frequently Hint, hint, hint. we're waiting. Uh, we, we like having Jericho's write, so writing, yes. but, uh, that's something we do at ordinary times. Also, we love giving you just the raw data. It's something you really need to start doing in your information rotation. Uh, read those Supreme court documents, sure. read those housing numbers, read that stuff for yourself. Don't just take a talking head's word for it. Right. Uh, Jericho Hill, appreciate everybody letting up folks know where your social media is because you're a fun twitter follow my friend yeah so look i i'm on twitter as motoconomist that's m-o-t-o-c-o-n-i-m-i-s-t hopefully i spell that right but motoconomist um and also got a Substack that jericho hill j-e-r-i-c-h-o-h-i-l-l a great stephen king reference i hope you get it uh on substack.com and obviously i write on ordinary times as motoconomist and i should have a piece out before the end of the week so uh, as always i appreciate andrew having me around i'm glad that he's feeling better um uh, i look forward to more of these conversations in the future uh jericho hill thank you for your time today my friend thank you for having me on yeah you'll be a regular don't worry about it thank you sir right, bye-bye If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. 
CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.